Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric B. Goodness, is there a delay? What's going on, Eric? There's not a delay. We're, we're talking on the phone, and, you know, this is like, <laughs> this has happened. <laughs> Have we done this three times on the phone now? This is our third time. And um, I think it's because you can't you see me. You delay every time, dude. No, I think it's because you can't see me that you kind of, like, get this mental delay. Not really an auditory delay. And there's just like a synapse not connecting, not firing off in your brain that you can't don't, like register it on me. too much. You know, like you're a visual learner. Today we are joined by our special guest, Tim. How are you doing, Tim? I'm already having fun. I just, <laughs> oh. I, I, I enjoy the banter. This is a good start. <laughs> oh yeah, we're, it's going to be a blast, dude. Uh, so how are you doing, man? How's uh, survival going? Oh, doing well. And the big shift for me is I anyone who has the opportunity to get a puppy in the midst of the uh, this pandemic, I would highly recommend it. I mean, yeah. crate training so much easier when you're there all day. But after watching any news, you can just sit down with that puppy and just forget about it for a while. It, it's worth it. That's a mood booster. Right. So where are you from? Where are you from, Tim? I'm from New Hampshire, so I'm uh, talking to you from Manchester, New Hampshire today, yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. I think you're our first new, are you New Hampshireites? New Hampshireans? Uh, new Hampshireites is, is how I go. Live free or die okay. state. Yeah. Sometimes like it that. feels a little bit like live free and die, but that's, that's you know, our problems. <laughs> you guys should just try to just get absorbed into Canada. It'd probably be better for everybody. <laughs> we'll see how things go in the next year yeah exactly so uh, when were you first introduced to recovery Tim so for me I, I kind of have two rounds of how I think about this uh, yeah. the first was 10 years ago I had been hospitalized I had a procedure go wrong and Ooh. I had had a, an acute I had had like a short-term mild pancreatitis and they weren't sure why I developed it. I was 25 years old. Um, and so the doctors did a procedure and they figured it out. It was this weird thing where I had a weirdly formed duct that caught a, a gallstone, but in the process of figuring that out, they actually hit the pancreas and it went from normal pancreatitis to acute necrotizing pancreatitis, which means the pancreas was eating itself. Oh, God. Yeah. So needless to say, that was painful. And they, uh, soon they put me in the ICU, told my family to come in. They weren't sure if I would live or die. And Goodness. the only thing that they re- could really do for me is make sure that I didn't take anything by mouth. So no food, no water, not even ice cubes. And just put me on a lot of pain medicine. And so I was on a level of uh, fentanyl and Dilaudid that they normally reserve for people at the very end of life. And luckily I didn't die. Um, But I got through two months in the hospital and came out on it the other side alive and then was just sent home with bottles of Dilaudid and fentanyl patches And I did not realize at the time that my next challenge could be just as deadly. And that was developing an opioid addiction. Yeah. All right. And how long have you been clean? So there were some 
setbacks and some hard times because and for me it was um having another couple medical procedures so it was mm-hmm. times where i consider it a relapse but also not the worst of that it could have been um and so it's hard to set those dates exactly but the biggest turning point for me and where i really look back and it just is emblazoned in my memory was a conversation with my doctor two months after I got out of the hospital. He looked Mm. at my prescriptions and saw that they were running out way too quickly. Mm -hmm. And while I had been in the hospital, I had had different doctors actually confront me and say that they thought I was faking my pain in order to get more pain medicine. And each time they had actually missed a complication. And so... I was really defensive, right? Like I would not let anyone tell me that I did not need this pain medicine. I would not let anyone tell me that I didn't need as much as I was taking. And at this point it was just compulsive, constant usage for pretty much any reason I could think of in my head to tell myself I need this. Mm. Um, And this doctor sat me down. He looked at my chart and he just said, Tim, you need to know you're addicted to your pain medicine. And immediately everything in me got ready to fight him, got ready to give every excuse I could think of. I had all of my justifications pre-prepared in my head. Yeah. And then the next thing he said was, but you didn't do anything wrong. I'm not blaming you for anything. Mm. And so I kind of let out a, a, a breath for a second. Yeah. And then he said, and I also want you to know that I believe you're still in pain. And that for me completely disarmed me because I was used to having someone accuse me, right? Like it was like, Oh, you're just doing this because you just want to get high. As Mm -hmm. opposed to understanding that I was dealing with something, right? I was dealing with the physical pain still, but I was also dealing with the fact that I was out, like, I wasn't going to work anymore. My life had been flipped upside down. All of my plans were on hold And I was home alone, not able to eat and feeling incredibly isolated and anxious about my life. And without me knowing it, the pain medicine had started was my way of coping with that. It was my way of medicating all these other things too. And to have Mm. someone stop and to say, I know you're still in pain. Yeah. Completely flipped things for me. And then one thing I was not expecting from a pancreatic specialist was the next thing he said is he goes, so Tim, what are your goals in life? Which not what I was expecting to talk to my doctor about, but I started talking to him about wanting to go back to work. I started talking to him about wanting to get out and being able to run again. And after we Mm -hmm. talked about my goals for a few minutes, he said, so when you imagine your life in the future, do you see yourself being able to accomplish those things and do those things while you're still undilated in fentanyl or do you imagine you're going to stop? And I just sat there and I said, well, I I don't want to be taking the drugs forever. And he goes, great. Then we're on the same page. Let's be a team to get there. Mm. And that was a story that I did not talk about for a long time. Cause I then, you know, went into some cognitive behavioral therapy, some other counseling 
and was able to step down over time off of the pain meds and then eventually completely quit using. Mm. And I just didn't tell anyone, right? Like my mom knew, my immediate family knew. But other than that, I never talked about the experience because I was so used to the stigma of being like, I, yeah. don't, I don't want anyone to know that my doctor told me I'm an addict. Like I can't, I can't admit that to anyone. And so mm. kind of my second round of when I fully began to process all of that was just uh, four years ago when I moved back. I was, at the time, I had been down in Washington, D.C. Then I moved back to my home state of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And I started reading every day about people dying. And then it wasn't just yeah. other people. It was people who graduated in my class. It was the friends of friends. It was friends. It was meeting the kids of whose parents were locked up and now they're in the foster care system. And I realized that I wanted to tell my story and that I wanted to tell it publicly because there's so many misperceptions about people who are in active addiction. There's misconceptions about people who are in recovery. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to tell my own story to hopefully get others to think a little differently. And also as a way to try to give some hope that, an opioid addiction, any other kind of addiction does not need to be a death sentence. Yep. And there are ways that we can be compassionate. We can be empathetic towards others, even in the midst of active addiction in a way that can help change their lives. And those are the two marking points that I really look back to of that moment when I first realized that I was addicted And then that second moment when I first realized that I needed to join the community of those in recovery in a public way, because since then, not just about substance use or substance addiction, since then, the deepest life lessons I've learned about being a more full human have been from people in recovery. And Mm. I really think there's so many voices of those in recovery today who I listen to and I hear them and I'm like, these are the modern day prophets we need Mm. because so much of our society right now, if it's not an addiction to drug and alcohol, it can be an addiction to money. It can be an addiction to materialism, shopping, whatever it is. And it's the people who've gone through it with stuff like drugs and alcohol and really hard, like struggles that, you know, these tough stories they can say, I've been through that, I have seen that, and there is a way out. And so that's why mm-hmm. I love talking with others in recovery, because even if it's not about my own history of addiction, it's about being a better human. And I love mm-hmm. doing it. Absolutely. So how did like your uh how did you like really begin your like process of recovery? Like what did you like seek out to like really give up? Uh, the opiates and and get yourself off that stuff to move forward. One of the things that was really helpful for me, and I mean, this is in the, you know, the AA tradition, but also kind of now I think is explained in other language. And I kind of learned it through the more cognitive behavioral therapy piece Mm. was how to be more self-reflective and be in conversational with myself about what was really driving my my drug usage, right? Because I was mm. in this this awkward place where 
I still actually had a ton of physical pain yeah. that the opioids was were addressing, but when it had kind of gone from a physical dependence to an addiction was when I had started self-medicating all of these other things that were going on. And that's when it really mm -hmm. became compulsive and I felt it was out of control. And so that process of learning to have a conversation with my cravings, <laughs> learning mm. to identify them and to, I even at you know, one point started trying to name the different feelings that I had. Um, yeah. and to be able to be self-reflective about what's going on, right? Like what's the source of this pain right now? And that's where, you know, everybody who steps into a recovery meeting pretty quickly <laughs> learns about halts which is partly why I think this is so, such an important conversation right now. You know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You know, what oh, yeah. are these different things inside of me that are going on? Am I actually treating a physical pain right now? Or am I treating the fact that I feel isolated? Um, am I treating yeah. the fact that I feel embittered against God and the universe because two months of my life were taken away being stuck in the hospital and I had to go through terrible pain. Um, mm. And that early process of being more self-reflective is something that was key for me in coming to a place where I was able to stop, but it also has now been something that I keep coming back to, right? And mm -hmm and conversations in my own life with friends, with loved ones, with my wife, being mm -hmm. able to stop and identify an emotion and ask, where is this coming from right now? Yeah. And the, the important thing there was I grew up in a more evangelical Christian setting and mm -hmm. had some great people who I learned from in that context and also had some other baggage that I needed to get through. And I think some of the baggage that I had held over from that kind of childhood upbringing was this idea of don't feel angry. Don't feel mm. these desires. Don't feel lust. Don't feel sexual. Don't feel all these things. Yep. Don't, don't enjoy things too much. And so that was about suppressing those feelings. And the shift mm -hmm. for me in my own recovery was I'm not trying to repress those any things anymore. I'm trying to have a conversation with them. I'm trying to mm -hmm. understand them. Mm -hmm. And in this process, I met with a spiritual director and he one day just looks at me and he goes, Tim, it sounds like you're angry. And at this point I had stopped using, but was still all the things that I was dealing with. I had not resolved. Mm -hmm. And he goes, it sounds like you're really angry. And I was like, yeah, I guess I am. And he goes, the next time you feel that kind of anger, don't push it away. Don't push it down. Don't try to stop it. Hold it close. Get to know it. And see if you can talk to it about where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, if you ever find yourself with a choice between sorrow and distance between sadness and bitterness. He goes, go for the sadness, go for the sorrow, live into that because it's the alienation that will keep feeding the anger and push it further away. It's not bad that you're ever angry, 
Mm-hmm. But it's a question of what are you going to do with that anger? And if that anger brings you to a place where you're sorrowful and you're sad about the negative things that can happen, that's the place where you can start to heal that. And I have carried that with me ever since. All right. Um, definitely have some questions for you. But do you want to start, Eric? Sure. Weren't expecting that, okay. were you, David? Um, so, no. A- anytime I give you the chance to start the questioning, you say yes. <laughs> so I've listened to way more of our podcast than you have. Well, I, I do all the editing, so I, I'm not sure that's fair. That's true. That's, that's, you know, you might listen to Finnish podcasts. Um, okay, that's, that's fair. So, but you never say no, just say it. Okay, okay. Well. Okay, okay, okay. So I, um, I was also introduced to opiates through a doctor. Um, so I was introduced to Oxycontin during the, you know, when Oxycontin was becoming Oxycontin. Um, Now, one of the issues that I kind of had a similar, I feel like I had a similar conversation with my, with one of my doctors. I I think it was my anesthesiologist, which was weird that he was the one prescribing me the meds at such high levels, but I know I was getting medications from multiple doctors. So, you know, kind of the real question is, uh, I have two questions about kind of medical stuff, but the first question is, um, you know, how untrustworthy are you of the medical community, if at all, um, from kind of like your experience? Because, uh, you know, I also went through, you know, surgeries where there were tons of complications and issues, which bumped my recovery time back from what was supposed to be three months to well over a year. Uh, so, where do you stand right now with the medical community from your experience, you know, kind of from what you were describing before, which sounded terrifying? Totally stole my question. <laughs> um, so I, I guess probably like you all and many listeners, there's a deep ambivalence there mm-hmm. of I have, you know, this moment of thinking back to that doctor who I just have heard so many other stories and I volunteer here in town with a syringe exchange program. And I'm just constantly now hearing stories of people who, you know, 30 years working construction and their knees are shot and their back is shot and they get prescribed an opiate for real pain and then as soon as their usage becomes problematic their doctor calls them a junkie and cuts them off right like and Mm -hmm. so what do they do they go to heroin they're you know now they're shooting up fentanyl um and i i hear all these stories of these doctors who just you know really have not done their own research on pain medicine (laughs) and how to use it and or they go to the opposite end and just get afraid and just cut people off entirely. Yeah. And then you end up with chronic pain patients who they've figured out a regimen that works for them for years and suddenly they're getting cut off. So there's there's these extremes on either end. And at the same time for me, I've got 
this memory of a doctor who just stopped everything. I know he did not have time that day to spend that kind of like to have that kind of conversation with me, but he put everything else on hold to be empathetic, to listen and to be compassionate. And it was funny. I so was working on my book, addiction nation and I'm sending in drafts to the publisher and they keep saying like, Hey, don't you have other stories to tell? You keep talking about this conversation with your doctor. I was like, yeah, I do. But that's the one that stuck out to me. And then a few weeks later, I got to interview this, this guy, Dr. Miller. Um, so if you've heard of motivational interviewing, if you know about motivational interviewing, that was his brainchild. He was one of the guys to develop motivational interviewing hmm. and got to sit down with him and talk with him about my own story. And when I told him this, he just smiled and laughed and he goes, well, of course. And he sends me this research paper um, where he went through and he, he was looking at some of the worst of um, the like really confrontational therapies that took for like the scared straight kind of thing um, where you get everybody in a room and just tell someone how terrible they are. Like oh, yeah. some of the worst of those things and is just like dissecting about how there has never been a study that shows that these like embarrassing confrontational, like beat up somebody kind of tactics are effective. Every once yeah. in a while you happen to like, maybe it works, but in general it tends to make things worse because now that person feels isolated and like they don't have anyone to talk to. And how do you deal with feeling isolated and ashamed and like everyone hates you? You drink, you go back to yourself, like that's, mm -hmm. that's the normal path. And he went through and decades worth of research and he had found a, a study where there were ER docs who they trained a therapist to come in and just spend 10 minutes with anyone who is admitted um, for alcohol reasons, where all they did was say, I understand, like, you must be going through a lot right now. Here's some resources. Those who came in and just had 10 minutes of an empathetic connection with another person were drastically more likely to enter into recovery and to seek treatment than those who weren't. Yeah. And he did this study where he wanted to see, he wanted to prove as a therapist that you really need a long time of talk therapy in order to um, have sustained recovery. So he split up two groups. One had a half an hour empathetic session um, and the other had, and then just got a workbook. And then the other group had 10 weeks of therapy. And at the end of it, there wasn't a significant difference. So he did it again, but he extended the time of therapy again, not a significant difference. So he tried mm -hmm. all these different things to prove his point, but he came back to the biggest thing was the empathetic intervention. So then he participates in this like huge study. There's all these different people who they're testing a lot of these different approaches and found that, you know, 12 steps was actually, you know, in some cases marginally better than some of these other approaches, but still mm -hmm. did results from motivational interviewing and some from, from some other techniques, smart recovery, things like that. But then he dove into the data and found that most of the differences in outcome came down to one thing 
And that was the empathy rating of the individual therapist or practitioner who was helping people out. That drove the biggest difference in outcomes. And so at the end of it, he just asked the question. He's like, so what else could it be besides he's like, that is can transform people's lives in a short period of time can have a sustained effect on their behavior and is often something that makes a mark in them that they always keep coming back to. Mm. And he said, in the Jewish tradition, it's called Hesed. In the Muslim tradition, it's called Ramah. In the Christian tradition, it's called Agape. But lots of, most of us just call it love. Mm. And that this is where I think studying addiction, studying recovery is so fascinating because yes, we can now understand all of these medical aspects that we never did before. Um, we can understand how addiction changes the brain. We can even, and I know this isn't, connect, doesn't always connect with everyone in the 12 step tradition, but I think, you know, there's a lot that we need to learn from medically assisted treatment now. And that's mm -hmm. an important thing and all these scientific discoveries, but at the same time, we are holistic people who are also transformed by these spiritual encounters, by these encounters of being in relationship to other people. Mm. And that one of the failures of, I think oftentimes Western medicine is that failure to acknowledge that you can simultaneously have a medical scientific understanding and look at fMRI scans about how the brain changes as a result of addiction and say, love changes people. Love mm -hmm. increases the likelihood of recovery. Love can save lives. Both can be true at the same time. And that, Absolutely. I think, is one of the things that the medical profession has not fully grasped and needs to integrate in order to be more effective in treating addiction. Mm. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Um, and, uh, you sort of like brought up something that, uh, it wasn't a question before and you made it a question while, like while you were talking. Um, and it, it was really about like that empathetic connection, um, be it in a strict recovery setting or a therapy type setting or an actual like clinical setting. And, um, my, my question is this. Is an individual's recovery just as contingent on the community that is around them as the individual's actions themselves? I love that question. And I think I will be learning to answer it the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, and part of why I wrote my story and, and wrote this book was because I think the cultural emphasis is far too much on the actions of the individual. Mm -hmm. And we have failed to understand how much the community matters, how much the society matters, even how much economics matter. Mm -hmm. um, and that yeah. we really need to look at all of these things and that's where the subtitle of my book is what the opioid crisis reveals about us, 
right? Ooh. What does it say about our society yep. that we have the highest overdose rate in the world? I don't mm-hmm. think that somehow people living in the United States are uniquely prone to addiction just because of who we are. Mm-hmm. I think we have created a society that encourages addiction. I think we have an economy that flourishes temporarily at least off of addiction. I think yeah. we are isolated from each other in ways that encourages addiction. One of the other researchers I loved is Bruce Alexander. And he was, you know, the guy who did the famous rat park study um, and looked at, is that something that I, I don't want to repeat this for your listeners. If everybody knows the rat park study, but also love it and dive into it. No, go ahead. I, I, I don't recall it. So Bruce Alexander wanted to understand what about addiction is not just about the drugs and not just about the person taking it. And Mm -hmm. so he realized that all of the studies that were done about like cocaine or heroin being highly addictive, it was always done on rats in these really small cages called Skinner boxes. And they would give Uh the rat two things of water. One would be laced with morphine or cocaine and the other would be just straight water. And so the rats would sit there and press the button and keep getting the morphine, keep getting the cocaine. And then he's like, you know what? Maybe it's not just the chemical. Maybe it's also the environment the rat is in. So he creates rat yeah. park. Big place for the rats to play, to have friends. There's lots of rats in there. They can have mates. They've got little bits of paper and sawdust to play with. And while some of the rats still did develop problematic usage and would still use, it never was at the level that they saw in these Skinner boxes. So his question is, what is it about our society that might be a lot more like a rat cage than we want to admit? And that maybe, you know, what we saw in the 1980s with the rise of the crack epidemic maybe our public policy was treating people in inhumane ways, right? Where people are ending up in these broken down high rise apartment without access to jobs, without access to mm-hmm. experiencing yep. systematic dis- discrimination. And then a substance yeah. come along, comes along that makes them forget about that for a while and feel powerful. Well, there's a little surprise that people turn to that. And mm. then today we see opioids that have flooded out. It's not just in inner cities, it's now flooded out to communities with McMansions. Yep. And maybe these people who we thought had the American dream, right, who we thought were living these ideal lives, have actually put themselves into these rat cages of their own making. Oh, wow. And yeah. I think these are the questions we need to ask. And that's a lot of what I try to dive into and especially for people who might not be in recovery, this is like an introduction for those folks to understand more of these dynamics that are at play. Mm-hmm. And now after yeah. saying all of that, one of the other studies that I think is important is if a person believes that their addiction is a disease that they can't do anything about, right? And this is the tough thing, like with the AA tradition, right? that powerlessness thing is a paradox. It's not a state, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and yeah. 
And for people who are introduced to it, I think in a poor way, they hear like they can mistakenly hear, this is not my fault. There's a drug out there that can take care of this for me. So I don't need mm. to be, I don't need to be a participant. Right. And so there, mm-hmm. there does exist that mindset for some people. Yeah. And when that happens, of course, recovery is going to be hard. Of course, yeah. it might not be sustained. Um, because we need to simultaneously recognize as a country, what are we doing that was like, that makes it so that now we've had this drop in mortality, right? Where mm-hmm. people like were dying earlier than before because of alcohol related diseases, because of overdoses. And then also at the same time, for those in the midst of recovery, keep coming back to the fact that we all have to be participants in our own recovery. Otherwise it's not possible. And I have heard some people kind of do fun modifications on the 12 step tradition. It is like that. Some people might need to start and not hear you are powerless. You know, Bill W he had been, he had been a stock, like with a stockbroker or banker, he had been Mm -hmm. a successful guy. And so part of his lesson was learning powerlessness and learning that in a deep way, other people who have been, you know, crunched down their entire lives or coming out of being abused or trauma, they might need to hear for the first time, you are powerful and you have inside Mm -hmm. you everything you need to kick some ass. <laughs> and yeah, that might, no, you know, that might be the right. spiritual lesson some people need. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And um, what, what you just talked about with like the, the rats being um, contained in like the Skinner boxes and everything like that, it, it rung a bell of, cause obviously like we've been doing this for quite a while, like podcast recovery. And I've also been in recovery and heard so many people's stories. And one of the most common threads through everybody's stories is isolation, whether it's, it's, uh, actual isolation or perceived isolation. There is this sense that like the addict, the individual is completely alone and disconnected from everybody else. So yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, because like there, there also is a, a, for all animals, all social animals, once, once they get taken out of social situations, they become in like a level of psychosis and you can see it in zoo animals. Like they, they pace back and forth. They're not in their natural habitat. They're not doing natural things. So they get depressed. They get angry. Like they feel all those feelings, but like we as humans, what are we going to do? We're going to hit that feeder bar of whatever substance is coming down the pipe and so, like, the, the fact, like, how, how you talked about how, like, the community has to be um, looked at in a, in a much broader way, um, it, it's really refreshing to hear that. And because re- recovery has definitely some work to do, and we're at a really cool time with, with science and open-mindedness that uh, those things are finally possible. Yeah. And one of the things that I think was really healing for me to understand and also just being public, right? Because I first wrote about my story and I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, anytime anyone Googles my name in a professional context, the first thing that will come up 
is that I was addicted to opioids. Like I had to do my own work coming to terms on that. Um, And I hadn't had to do that work 10 years ago. So then I had to do it just four years ago. And Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the baggage that I think I had had from childhood too was I had always learned about how sinful I was growing up. Right. Uh, I was told this term for anyone else who grew up in this context, I was totally depraved. And, you know, as a 12 year old, what I'm just thinking is just like, Oh God, like, does my mom know that I've cut out photos of women in underwear from the Sears catalog and hid it in my closet? Like everyone must know I'm totally depraved. Oh man. That, that brought, wow. I forgot about catalogs. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was before I had a, you know, fast internet speed as a teenager. Right. Yeah. Um, And so this is, this is the, like, you just feel like, I have something wrong with me inside of me that no one else can know <clears throat> and no one else should know. Cause if they ever knew what was actually going on inside my head, inside my heart, mm-hmm. yeah. no one would love me. No one would you know, want to be with me. No one would want to be my friend. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of sin was just a place of shame, right? And it just increased the shame. And then I was like, I was told, all right, well, if you think you did something right now, you're just being proud and you really did something wrong. And so it's all bad. And that just was, you know, terrible as a teenager with flowing hormones. It just makes you feel bad constantly. And so breaking away from that, and there's a poet, Andrea Gibson, who, you know, I had left that view behind for a while, for like a, a while now, but I still hadn't had anyone quite articulate for me what it, what was the alternative view. Mm-hmm. And she wrote uh, this beautiful poem, the nutritionist. And one of the lines in it was sometimes the most healing thing we can do is to say over and over and over other people feel this too. Mm-hmm. So when I look back now, I don't talk about total depravity or anything like that, but I still think that language of sin is helpful. But instead of thinking of it as a reason to feel bad all the time, I think about sin as the ways that we've inherited trauma and the ways that we pass along trauma. Mm -hmm. And that those feelings that we have inside, when we talk about like, Hey, we're all sinful. And I go back now to my those childhood verses of like all have sinned. And I say, Oh, the real meaning there is that thing inside me that I feel bad about that thing inside me that I feel like no one else can find out about that thing that I'm struggling with that I want to keep hidden. Actually, everybody out there, everyone is dealing with some of their own shit. And mm-hmm. I can, I can be more open because of that. I can share more because of that. And man, even though AA hasn't been my primary path, going to an AA meeting is better church than I've ever gone to Mm -hmm. because everyone there has learned how to talk about that in a way that so often brings healing. And 
you know, a new person who gets to share it for the first time. And instead of shocked looks of horror about the things they've done in their past, you just have an old timer in the back being like, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in there. Yep. Like that is Absolutely. a transforming experience for a lot of people to be in that community, to get to say the worst things you've ever done, the worst things you've ever experienced, the worst things you've ever thought, and know that you can still find grace. You can still find healing and you can still find acceptance. I wish that so many more people, whether or not they've ever struggled with drugs or alcohol, had communities like AA can provide for people. Absolutely. All right. What you got, Eric? So I kind of want to, uh, and I mean, you've touched on this a little bit throughout your entire, you know, share. Um, but you did kind of mention it that you didn't come up through, you know, the AA fellowship. And, you know, you did mention like CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what forms of, I guess, he- like, I don't want to call it self-help, but it is help, like self-help and healing. Do you do for your recovery today? Like, how do you, what no. would you consider your recovery? Like, um, from a, you know, I don't even know how, like, how would you, what, what do you do for your recovery? Yeah, that's a great question for me. It has really been diving into more of the contemplative tradition of Christianity. Okay. And Mm -hmm. so that is, um, having felt some resentment towards some of like the Christianity that I had experienced previously. And again, you know, it was mixed as a kid. My parents were actually really good, but it was like, I got sent to a private Baptist school for a while and that was a terrible experience. And they never technically kicked Mm -hmm. me out, but they did ask me to pray about whether or not God still wanted me to attend. Oh God. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, yeah. How old were you out of curiosity? Well, I was 15, and what brought it all to a head was the teacher was teaching that God is literally a male during Bible class, and that's why women should submit to men. And as a 15-year-old, as a 15-year-old, I thought, like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. And I was like, yeah, this is why women can't teach. This is why women can't preach, and they must submit to their husbands. And so I just raised my hand, and I was like, so... Mr. Bible teacher, are you saying God's got a dick? And <laughs> Did you actually say that? Yes. Oh my God. And then he got, upset with, he got upset with me and I was like, fine. I guess God pees standing up, but when we get up to heaven, you better lift up his cloak and check. So that was when I got sent to the principal's office and the principal was yeah. upset with me because I had recently faked a conversion experience in order to get out of chapel early. What? (laughs) Well, and this is, if you guys haven't been a part of this before, you might not understand, but so he was giving a sermon and he wanted Uh to convert to Christianity, even though you had to sign a statement that you were a Christian in order to attend the school. So he makes us all bow our heads and close our eyes And then he starts to pray and he goes, he's like, God, you know, heaven is beautiful, pearly gates and mansions and, you know, streets paved of gold and hell is going to be hot and sulfur and you're going to burn forever. And I just know there's one person here today who's ready to convert and ready to sign the Lamb's book of life and give their life over to, and he, he goes on 
And each time he goes through and heaven gets a little bit better and hell gets a little bit hotter. Yeah. Even easier to become a Christian. And I just realized he's not going to stop until somebody raises their hand. So I just got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I raise my hand and sure enough, as soon as my hand goes up, he just looks out and he goes, I see those hands. I see those hands. I look around and I was like, Bullshit, there's no hands, it's just me. Now you're making up numbers. <laughs> so Oh my god. Needless to say that that what I had been raised with of this guy in heaven who needed to kill his own kid in order for me <clears throat> to be okay is yeah. no longer what I believe. Mm-hmm. I also then came to a place where I discovered all these other traditions and mm-hmm. all of these other ways of understanding, um, you know, for me, like the cross and the resurrection. I'm right now I'm in the midst of Lent and mm-hmm. coming soon. And that belief that this now the Pope canceled Easter, dude. <laughs> Trump, put it Trump put it no. back on. You can't do that, man. The rat, the rabbit's in quarantine, bro. <laughs> so, well, I'll celebrate at home with my wife. We'll have a good time. There you uh, go. Yes, and please, no one go to church on Easter. Please don't do that. Not worth no. it. No matter what Trump says, just turn that off. Um, so, for me, that comes to, to this idea that, like, resurrection is not so much about a historical event, but a present reality that they, I, I, there's a promise of resurrection in each of our lives. And that Mm. means that, you know, we can feel like we are like Jonah in the belly of the whale and we can Mm. feel like all hope is lost and we can feel like death is upon us and that there is nothing else we can do, but resurrection is still there. And I, I Mm -hmm. believe that because I see it every day. I see it Mm -hmm. when I go to needle exchange and there's somebody who's ready to take one more step for their own health, take one more step to take those care of those around them. I see it when I get to talk to somebody, even in the midst of active addiction, who suddenly has a reflective moment and they tell me about a story about bringing back one of their friends after an overdose Mm-hmm. And they, they can say, I don't want to do this forever. I don't want this to be my life forever. I've seen what happens. That's resurrection. Mm-hmm. For me. And yeah. that's, that matters. And so that's a long theological way to answer. I've delved into that tradition now in new ways and um, spend time in meditation every day. Um, mm-hmm. I recently got a really cool new journal it's called a monk journal. You can check it out, monkjournal.com. Um, I just started doing it, and it's a you set intentions on a weekly, oh, yeah. monthly, and daily basis, and then you go back through and review your day. Um, and it helps you plan out your day, plan out your week, plan out your month. But as a way of living life with intentionality, it's a way of living a mindful life, a life of presence, yeah. and that's where I, I find that life. And I did not realize until recently that I feel like, you know, 
I don't know if, if other people often feel this way, but like when you talk about recovery, it's not just about the absence of the usage, but about mm-hmm. deepening of your own life. And I yeah. feel like I hit another level in my own recovery when I started volunteering at a syringe exchange. Mm-hmm. Because that kind of community with other volunteers who are also in recovery. Um, and at the same time, the way that I am able to connect with other people who are still in active addiction or in the early stages of recovery or in the midst of relapse um, has been something I did not know I was missing. Um, yeah. That has been the biggest blessing for me and where I keep the more folks I get to talk to who are doing stuff like this, like you guys having this podcast, the more I just keep coming back to what I was saying before, some of the best prophets I think in our country right now are the people in recovery who are learning, who are, who are helping share the story and share this message. Mm. Oh, man. Uh, I, I love that answer. Like what the, it, it was, what can I say? Um, it was a roundabout way of answering it, but like, it was just, you, you filled it with so much. And like, you said something that actually like, uh, rang a bell in my head. Um, when I, when I was in jail, finally like detoxing and everything and getting clean, uh, I got moved from Howard County, like Howard County jail up to like Philadelphia jail. And on my bunk was a little thing, uh, about Jonah and the belly of the whale, like the belly of the beast was what it was called. And like, that was all I had to read for like the, the, the time I was in Philadelphia jail. And it was just like, and like, I was, I was raised Presbyterian. I don't, I don't follow Christianity now, but like just that story. And like that parable was just like, so apt at the moment of like being in, being in jail, like being a suburban white kid who really didn't belong in Philadelphia jail, <laughs> uh, being in the belly of the beast, starting my recovery was, uh, that was really cool. Um, all right. So I got one last question for you and then we'll, and then we'll go to the Twitter question. Um, you talked about, um, changing the language of, recovery based on the individual, like somebody who has come down, like come into recovery. And like you said, they're, they're dealing with a lot of trauma. They're coming from a real low place. Maybe the first thing they, they don't need to hear in the first step is that they're powerless instead that, that, um, they're powerful. And this is something Eric and I, I know both believe, um, it's intentionally put in there, but it's often overlooked in the first step of the 12 steps. It says we were powerless over our addiction and everybody overlooks the were. That's a, that's a past tense word. Hmm. We were powerless. And now that we're clean, we have that power back and we can continue our steps. So how important do you think it is just changing the, just the language to fit the individual and their recovery model to give them a more successful um, prognosis of recovery? That's a great question. And that's a good observation too. Thanks for sharing that. That's, I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think there's language, there's language and there's hope. I think Mm -hmm. there's two things. So 
my my older sister works in cancer research and early on when i was diving into a lot of the research around addiction and recovery um, we were talking about cancer research and how they're treating cancer she said you know 20 30 years ago uh everyone was talking about the cure for cancer Mm -hmm. and that's not really how they talk about it anymore instead they talk about a cure for your cancer and your cancer, mm-hmm. your cancer. Mm-hmm. And their, their term is N equals one. That they think the way that they're going to beat cancer and really make a difference is not because they develop the singular cure, but because they learn enough about the different types of cancer that mm-hmm. they can create highly modified therapies for each individual person. And mm-hmm. that's going to be what really makes the difference. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, and, but how cancer started off with is you just had a couple of tools in your tool belt, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you applied it to every situation because that's the tools that we had. And it was beneficial because those were the best things that we had and it worked for some people. I think we're going to keep seeing, and I hope we keep seeing that kind of individualized approach and I think mm-hmm. that there are some there's some groups that do this better than others. There's some individuals that do this better than others. Um, you know, there's going to be some sponsors that do this better than others of understanding and reacting to an individual person's story and understanding that what worked for them might not work for another person, but that doesn't yeah. mean they're still not doing the work. And so mm-hmm. I hope that over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years, we get to that place where we start to identify the different kinds of common threads and different addiction stories so that we can better figure out what kind of treatment and social support or medication each person needs to assist them and support them in their recovery. And that's where I do think that that language really matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And The other part of it, I think, is that kind of hope. And one of the things that really drew this home for me is that my doctor, when he looked at me and talked to me, he didn't, he never, I could tell, and he never had to say it, but he knew that I wasn't a lost cause. He knew that I was a person worth working this through with. He knew that I was a person worth spending time with. And there were these two researchers, Leek and King, and they went to a few different alcohol recovery centers and they took an in-depth look at every person who was being treated there. And at the end of their time, they went to the staff and the therapists and said, you know, we've developed this new system for understanding the likelihood of someone moving into recovery. And we want to give you a list of all of the people that we have determined are more, more, most likely to get sober and stay sober. Mm-hmm. And so they go and they check back in. And sure enough, each time they check in six months, one month, a few years later, the people on their list were more likely to get sober, stay sober, more likely to get a job, keep that job. And if they relapsed, it was shorter and less severe. So they all come back and they're just like, wow, what, what did you guys figure out to so accurately predict this? And the big reveal was nothing. 
they had randomly assigned each person to that group. Hmm. The only thing that changed was the expectation of the staff and the counselors. The staff and the counselors Uh. believed those people would recover. So they retreated them with respect. They gave them extra chances. They get like, they supported them more because they believed they were the ones who would be successful. And it turns out, it was that belief that made all the difference. And this is where to go back to your thing before, does it matter what's, what the person chooses? What is, does it matter if the person's working their own program? Does it matter if the person's a participant in their own recovery? Absolutely. But I think that also shows that what do we do as a country? What do we need to do to wake up the rest of the country to say, if you think this is hopeless, it's more likely to be hopeless. But if you see the hope, if you see the dignity in every person, if you see the opportunity, if you see the possibility for resurrection in every person, even in the midst of their addiction, even while they're still using, even while they're still drinking, that will make a difference. That belief stays with that person and it changes the likelihood of them actually entering into recovery. Yeah. Oh, that was perfect. All right, Eric, is it, is it time? Go ahead, David. Do the Twitter. Good job. Good job. <laughs> My wife is shaking her head. As she should. Don't shake As your head at me, Kristen. she should. Um, no, she should. She should not. She, she should. should. should support her husband and his weirdness. So this is from an Instagram user today. And uh, Ooh, an insta- to, to the Instagram to, to the IG. Yes. Uh, to the IG doing it for the gram. Uh, so this is from sober pilot. And the Hi. way this works is uh, Tim, you'll, you'll answer the question first, then David, then followed by myself. And um, the question, you know, is pretty much, you know, based around what's going on currently. And when this episode is released, hopefully, we won't be in the same situation, but how do we stay connected and what does it really look like for us and, you know, different options on how to log on? So I, I think what's you know really being asked here is the irony of this question is palpable. So what's, what's being, you know, a lot of what's being asked is, um, you know, how, since we are, at this moment in the grips of the, you know, um, coronavirus, you know, how do we still connect with our fellow, um, you know, people who are in recovery, our fellows and, you know, supporting Mm -hmm. them. So, uh, Tim, go ahead. Yeah. I, a few things. I actually started giving out my, I have a zoom account for work and yep. I've given it out to some uh, one of my friends' home groups here. Connecting virtually on Zoom, especially if you've got a group where you know people a little bit more, is huge. And the other piece is don't just text. Like FaceTime, video yeah. calls, whatever it is, seeing another person's face is so important for our own communication. Um, just like you guys 
feel really different being on the phone, right? And it's hard to see that other person's face. When you I hate it. Intro. I hate it. I need I need the connection of Eric's mannerisms and and his disappointing his dis disgust in me. His scowl. <laughs> I need it. Yeah, I and I really wanted life. to see see your wife rolling your eyes when you said to the twitters. I mean, they're, <laughs> These are all oh, the moments of gold that we're missing out on. I know. I'm sad about it. Um, and so I would, I would encourage people to have those, those points of actually seeing another person face to face, even if it's just over um, technology. And for mm-hmm. me too, the part of how my addiction developed was I got out of the hospital and I was really isolated. I couldn't go to work. And I was in a relatively new city, so I had friends, but I didn't have like that core group of friends. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, that was part of what fueled that. And so I had about six months where I couldn't eat. And I saw, I would see people like once every two or three weeks. Mm. Um, and so I would also say to folks, set times for yourself to go meet with another person or talk to another person and stick to them mm-hmm. because in the moment you might not want to, but you really need that kind of connection. And yes. I think that people, there's a lot of people who sustaining their recovery is important enough to go find your friend, to go find a sponsor, find that social support and just stay six feet away. <laughs> um, yeah. That kind of like, there can be some important stuff. If you feel like that is essential to your sustaining your recovery, do it. And my last piece of advice is if you can get a puppy, (laughs) that little, (laughs) man, it is, it is so heartening and so distracting from anything else that can come in. Uh, Great pets can really be uh, an essential support system. I agree. I agree with that totally. Um, the, uh, I want to address the pet thing first. Yeah, like I got a pet at 30 days clean, and he has been my little my my cat. He has been there through all of like the ups and downs of my recovery for the last eight years, and it also it gave me a sense of responsibility of like I can I can take care of this living thing, and he can be happy and healthy with me. And like always be, uh, waiting there at the door. Like whenever I get home, all that good shit. It is a very heartwarming, um, piece and, and it's probably a lot cheaper than a kid. So go with a cat. Um, um, yeah. How do, how do I stay, how do we stay connected as a a, a recovery group? Um, I'm going to answer this two ways. I'm going to answer this current, coronavirus and post coronavirus, um, current coronavirus. How do we do it? Uh, just like you said, the use of technology, um, we are in an age of recovery where, like you said, we have those FaceTimes, we have those zoom meetings, we have, um, we have podcast recovery, sweet plug. Um, and, (laughs) uh, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have all these amazing tools right at our fingertips because most people have access to a smartphone or a computer. So you can, you can listen to these things and like, um, so you can at least 
hear a message of hope and like what you talked about was more of that interaction with, and I'm like with the FaceTime and the zoom and, um, not being able to be in the same studio as Eric being able to record it is a little bit of a disconnect. And, I, and like, I won't lie. It sucks. Um, because it's something I've gotten used to over the last year and a half. And it's something that I truly value in my recovery and, and I love, um, now, um, uh, post coronavirus, uh, it, it even more in in person uh, networking and truly developing relationships that are are really deep and meaningful and allowing yourself to become vulnerable, even if it's only one person, if not a handful, um, is is priceless in recovery. That that sponsee sponsor. Um, relationship or just a networking relationship. You got to have somebody where, like you said earlier, you can share your deepest, dark, darkest uh, resentments, fears, uh, insecurities, guilt, shame, all that stuff. And they just don't bat an eye. And they're like, yep. And me too. And then how can we work together to grow beyond that? So it's about it. It's about human connection. I feel like that really came through in a lot of um, of this podcast is, is human connection and individuals uh, connecting with other individuals to make recovery stronger and better for the community as a whole. What about you, Eric? Um, so, yeah, I think... I mean we are blessed to live in the time that we live in from a technology standpoint, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, we, we, none of us are in the same room together, but we're able to connect right now over the phone and, you know, have a conversation about recovery and share a message, um, you know, with ourselves at the moment, but eventually with, you know, the rest of the world. And, you know, it only takes two, Eric. That's true. That's true. And I, you know, one of the things <laughs> I will, uh, you know, my, I don't talk about my sponsor very much on this podcast, but my sponsor actually lives in Virginia. So he doesn't live, to some people it would be far. He doesn't live that far. And, you know, if I'm ever in Virginia, it's not like that much of a hassle um, if I'm on that side of Virginia to get there. But, you know, when we do connect, we usually connect through FaceTime. So tomorrow night or uh, next Thursday or sometime soon, we're going to, you know, probably start working traditions again and kind of like start having, you know, kind of a a touch point. And that's just something that, you know, I was doing before the, um, you know, human interaction became less than desirable. So I think something for you No. what human interaction. Yeah, I'm not. not, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable. I guess for me, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm comfortable being by myself. So I'm not really, uh, you're a reincarnated life. You're a reincarnated lighthouse keeper. Yeah. I don't mind. You know, (laughs) I mean, I got my animals, I got my computers, uh, my wife's in the other room. We're good. You know? Um, so I think the other thing that's important and 
is also connecting with people outside of recovery and just having like, you know, they might still be in recovery, but, you know, having fun. And that can be hard if you're not used to, you know, how, you know, if you're not used to playing video games online or anything like that, but still connecting with those people, whether that's through uh, talking on the phone or, you know, I think, um, you know, we're talking about doing a, uh, a zoom version of board game night, which I uh, can easily set up. So I, I already did the research earlier today and it's, it's not that hard. So, you know, we're going to be playing board games at different houses, but that's, you know, it's not recovery, but it is, it keeps us connected, keeps us, yeah. you know, happy. It keeps us still on the pulse of what's going on in the world. And, um, you know, when I, re- morale. yeah. And, and I think when I've relapsed, in the past, one of the biggest things that comes to my mind is losing connection. Uh, not only with mm-hmm. like fellowships or with my reco- like with my recovery, but also with people. Because it's not just being yeah. connected. You know, I'm not really connected with. You know, we do the podcast, and you know, I, I do participate in my recovery, and you know, sometimes I'll participate in the fellowship, but most of my connection comes through my family. Um, and I put a lot of emphasis mm-hmm. on being there now when I wasn't there before. And that that's a form of connection for me. And, um, you know, making sure they know where I'm at. If like, you know, if I'm struggling, like I, I let someone know. And as long as they're receptive to understanding where I am and, you know, they're willing to listen and maybe help, um, you know, that's that's a good start. It doesn't have to just be someone in recovery to you know get mm-hmm. recovery yep but yeah cool all right all right, all right. well we would like to, we would like to thank our guest tim for uh joining us this evening Woo! thank you guys for having me <laughs> and uh tim Absolutely. you have a book um so we'll give you you know a few moments to you know plug your book and plug anything else that you'd like to uh, talk about how can people find you yeah the uh, the book is addiction nation what the opioid crisis reveals about us um, folks in recovery I think would appreciate it but especially if you've got people in your life that you always wanted to explain more about addiction and also explain the kinds of things that societally help contribute to addiction, but you haven't been sure how to do that. I think this book is perfect for that. That's where I've had a lot of people in recovery be like, yeah, it was good for me. And I gave it to my friends not in recovery because I need, I need them to understand. Um, But yeah, you can find me um, on Instagram for those who are out there. Timothy McMahon King. There's right now, it's going to be mostly puppy photos. Um, Twitter at uh, TM King. Um, or you can check out website. I send out occasional email updates, and it's mcmahonking.com. Nice. All right. Well, here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. 
Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Check out our website, podcastrecovery.com. Become part of the home group. Uh, Donate to our Patreon if you like what we're doing and want to support us. But most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe and stay clean.